the stroke of midnight. On New Year's Eve of the last decade of the 20th century, America's largest city is about to pay for the nastiness of its inhabitants. When that day comes, when the slime starts to rise, the Titanic just arrived. When ghosts start arriving by the boatload, we gotta find the guys. There's only one thing to do. Sometimes weird things happen. Someone has to deal with it. And who are you gonna call? Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what did they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ift Decker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by my dad, Richard Ift, to discuss the crucial theme of medievalism in the 1989 film Ghostbusters 2. So, Dad, welcome. Uh, thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. And why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and about why you agreed to talk about this movie? Well, I guess in terms of why I agreed to talk about the movie, mostly because you asked me to, but I'll, I'll get more to that. <laughs> I'm sort of a lawyer, although don't really practice law anymore and um, work for the government in a Position shall which shall, shall remain nameless for pers- uh, purposes of this uh, podcast. Although, uh, if you Google me, you can find out exactly what I do. So, in any event, um, in terms of why I wanted to talk about this movie, the only thing I guess I could really say is I really like Ghostbusters. Everybody really likes Ghost. <laughs> Ghostbusters was one of the greatest movies. Ghostbusters 2 was not one of the greatest movies ever made, or I guess from the best I can figure out, my sense is you decided you would sort of pick Ghostbusters 2 to try to nab me in because there's really no way you can make the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man be a medieval sort of character. So given not. We, we certainly, unless there's something about the medieval world I'm unaware of, but I didn't think they had anything quite like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, but they did have, I guess, something like uh, Vigo the Carpathian. So I guess we'll uh, we'll talk about him today. The original Ghostbusters is a significantly better movie, as we have agreed. Uh, Gozer is Sumerian, so we do have a connection to the ancient world, but even by my relatively flexible standards of what counts as medieval, I would say ancient Sumerian generally wouldn't quite cut it, being off in the other direction by a couple of thousand years or so. Well, I, I think you've, I think you've missed it on that end. So I think we're, right. uh, we're left with Ghostbusters 2, I think. And while it is not as good a movie as Ghostbusters, it was a movie that Comedy Central seems to have gotten the rights to and played constantly in the early 2000s. Uh, early 2000s, maybe, or even the late 1990s but yeah there was there was a time where it was sort of watchable almost at will on comedy central so uh while i did watch it again in preparation for this experience uh i'm not sure i really needed to uh because i have seen it enough 
because even though it's not as good a movie as Ghostbusters 1, you know, it is still, it's got the same characters. It has some mm-hmm. the same humor, I'd, I'd say, involved. It's just less of a masterpiece, let's put it that way. Yeah, but always, I would say, perfectly watchable and entertaining and was deeply available. And when mom had meetings at synagogue, you and I would watch Ghostbusters too in my in my youth. That's that's certainly true. So, so we have seen this. We have both we've seen this together many, many times. Yes, we have. So Ghostbusters 2 was released in 1989 and stars Bill Murray as Peter Venkman, Dan Aykroyd as Ray Stance, Sigourney Weaver as Dana Barrett, Harold Ramis as Egon Spengler, Rick Moranis as Lewis Tully, Ernie Hudson as Winston Zeddemore, Annie Potts as Janine Melnitz. So these are our kind of main cast who, of course, are all reprising their roles from the previous film. We also have in this as our main, well, I actually didn't even write down. I'm, I'm not sure who actually played Vigo. I didn't even write him down. I never uh, seen him in anything. Have you? Oh, okay. Yeah, that, Tell us who played Vigo. Good, good that you brought me in for this. Vigo uh, actually was played was played by a German actor, hmm. uh, name of Wilhelm von Hamburg. I think that was sort of a stage name, but uh, in any event, he was sort of some sort of former wrestler, and he had somewhat film <laughs> career. I mean, it was pretty clear that Ghostbusters was his. Uh, you know, uh, of his uh, film uh, film career. The most interesting thing about it is um, <laughs> while he played, you know, the image of, uh, of uh, Vigo in the movie, the character was actually voiced by Max von Sydow. Uh, really? Yes, very true. Apparently... Nobody told nobody was decent enough to tell Wilhelm von Homburg that oh. they were just bringing him in for his uh, hunky good looks and uh, or hunky monster like looks, however you want to put it, and didn't want to hear him talk. I don't know, maybe his German accent was a little too thick, or <laughs> but um, they didn't tell him that. So on the night of the premiere, everybody was there, and I guess he realized the first time. Oh. He- that uh, it was not him, but was a far better actor than he ever would be. And he stormed out of the premiere. Oh, I could see him being disappointed. I didn't something like that also happen with the guy who was the uh, the body of Darth Vader. That I don't know. I feel like I've heard that before that at least I don't think he was quite as mad, but that he was not informed that he was not in fact going to be the voice of Darth Vader. So it it was not, uh, it was at best a, uh, a mixed bag blessing for uh, him to be Vigo in this movie. Oh, well, yeah, Max. So Max von Sydow is in fact making uh, one of his many appearances on this podcast. Yes. We also have as his main henchman, and I guess our other primary villain, AKA the, you know, real villain of the man who doesn't understand when a woman is saying no, of Peter McNichol as Janusz Poha. Uh, This, by the way, is not, in fact, his real accent. He is from Dallas. (laughs) Right. And he continues to act. I, I, I actually don't remember having seen him in anything else, although I think he's had, uh, you know, a pretty significant film and tv career since then yeah 
But yeah, I've been, I don't think I had anything had jumped out to me. However, I am going to highlight Harris Yulin, who plays our, uh, you know, trademark asshole judge, Stephen Wexler, who I was looking at and I was like, why is this guy so familiar? And for me, the answer turned out to be that I have seen him play kind of the same role in that he, they were both like entitled sort of evil white men. <laughs> in like positions of power that they arguably shouldn't have as Quentin Travers in Buffy and Roger Stanton in 24. Uh, He's certainly a character actor that's been around forever at this point and, you know, can play, uh, I guess can play that character as you said. Mm. Yeah. Did you have anything to say about anyone else in the cast? Well, as you, you, we forgot to mention the, uh, the twins, uh, yes. Will uh, Duschendorf and Hank Duschendorf, who played, uh, I mean, because of film requirements, uh, right? Du- uh, single played the single uh, baby Oscar. Uh, the only uh, uh, sad note on that, actually, uh, Hank Duschendorf actually took his life at some point. But, oh, yeah. So, uh, I mean, you know, so not not everything in Hollywood is uh, roses at all times. So, um, right. And they must be, and they actually must be, or well, I guess just uh, William must be about my age. Yeah, I think they're pretty close, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah. Since, yeah, the film came out in 89, so filmed around 88, and they would have been about a year old, so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with that, we can get into the- On that that downer note, let's uh, continue to the movie. Sorry, sorry, but I I did want to- uh, uh just point that out because it is yes now we should we should share that a downer but at that point uh we can yeah get into the enumeratio or recap where we talk through the plot of the film so it begins five years after the events of the original and things have not worked out well for the ghostbusters during these ensuing years basically uh everybody sued the fuck out of them (laughs) for all of the property damage. So now I would actually, this is my first of many legal questions. Does it seem realistic to you that uh, they got sued? Uh, how do you think the insurance setup of all of this works? Uh, what is your opinion <laughs> about the legal yeah, situation here? I'm not sure I can opine on that for various reasons, but you know, the, the thing about it is, you know, if you watch Ghostbusters 1, I mean, they basically saved Manhattan from utter destruction uh you know the whole idea that they would basically be five years later or what are low lifes that are just sort of scraping by to make a living as opposed to still you know the heroes of the city i you know i think if anything it's just sort of a device for the movie mm-hmm. it a device for the movie to get it started but having said that i mean they were obviously doing a lot of things at the time that they shouldn't have been doing but since I don't, they obviously didn't create the problem. I mm-hmm. mean, were these ghosts, uh, you know, materializing in New York and causing havoc and all that sort of stuff? And uh, you know, I again, I, I think it's a little not realistic. But you know, hey, uh, who who knows in that kind of situation? And yes, the insurance. Uh, <laughs> Uh, implications of this would have been legion and uh, hard. Put it this way, they would have taken many more years than five years to work themselves out. That makes sense. I will not ask for further official legal opinions. 
on, on that front, on the insurance front at least. So at this point, they now have a restraining order, which bans them from continued supernatural investigations and specifically ghost catching. So what they're now doing instead is that Ray and uh, Winston own a, or sorry, no, Ray owns this bookstore, an occult bookstore. And then as his, I guess that does not entirely pay the bills. So he and Winston also have a job entertaining at children's birthday parties where they basically show up and do the Ghostbuster song and are not super popular. <laughs> so he has the scene where they're at the party and they're kind of doing the song and it's who you get a call and then the children go, key man. Yeah. No, it's, um, again, it's part of the, just how far they've fallen um, part of the, you know, getting the movie set up. But uh, it, it's, it's uh, the, the five years have not gone well for the Ghostbusters. Let's put it that way. Though I will say, Egon works at a lab, which seems legit. Like, the architecture kind of makes me think they're vaguely implying it might be linked with Columbia. Like, he actually seems like he might have a real job. Yeah, no, Egon seems to be the most, I think Egon, uh, or Harold Ramis, I think he wrote the movie. So maybe that's just, uh, you know, he decided to do it that way. But uh, yes, he's sort of the while sort of in the mad scientist type mode, certainly has enough of a career still that he was able to get some sort of job in the, uh, at least on the fringes of scientific research. You know, good for him. He's got this real lab job. He is testing the, we'll see eventually he's like testing like the impact of emotions on the environment, which will of course actually be relevant research, arguably. Yes, it will. Peter Venkman also, I guess, has some amount of uh, relevant experience on his uh, supernatural talk show that he is hosting. He's got a talk show about psychics. So he's got two people on who have different opinions about when the end of the world will come. The first guy says that it's going to be midnight on New Year's Eve, which, of course, Venkman mocks as not being a great move from sales perspectives for the book, since that's going to, you know, that's going to have come and gone by the time the paperback <laughs> release is coming out. But actually, he seems to have at least an argument in terms of the later events of the film that obviously it won't turn out well. But there is, of course, a cataclysmic yeah. event that takes place on yeah. New Year's Eve. Yes, there is. Although I think one of them, one of them, I thought this... Uh, they've been making like multiple end of the world predictions. So, I mean, again, mm-hmm. these are uh, uh, <laughs> whatever your opinion on psychics, uh, let, let's just say Bill Murray, Peter Venkman is only getting the uh, the least credible psychics, you know, pop yes. on his show. Again, pretty consistent with the fact that, well, he was always somewhat of a charlatan and he's certainly no further than that at this point. He gives my Dr. Venkman. Does he actually have a PhD? I uh, remember in, in the first movie, they he was actually teaching at, well, doing research at, I yeah. think, a, a, a university which looks surprisingly like Columbia. Yeah, no, I, in fact, hmm. think uh, in one, probably I'm thinking of the first movie when the EPA comes in to sort of start investigating them. And he they say something like, uh, are you Peter Venkman? And he said, I'm Dr. Venkman. That's what you're looking for. So in any event. So yes, he, 
he 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 says he's a doctor. So that's all we know. So so somebody allegedly gave him a PhD at some point. Somebody allegedly gave him a PhD. In something. I think they explain that in Ghostbusters 1. Okay. And it's, he gives a couple of their out there disciplines. Okay. Okay. But okay. Yeah. yes, yeah. yeah. In fact, he says he's got multiple PhDs in two, mm. two areas, I think. It's something like paranormal psychology yeah, now some, that I think about it, right? Yes, yeah. Yes. Yes. Which is probably not a ton of institutions that are granting that particular doctorate. But. Probably not. Yes. <laughs> Whereas Egon, I buy, has a legit, P, has like a real PhD from a real institution. Right. So his other guest has the idea instead that the world is going to end on February 14th, 2016, which uh, by now, of course, has indeed come and gone. And although it seems like the world might have ended in 2016, it technically didn't. Well, it certainly didn't end in February of 2016. No, no. It took another few months to drag on. <laughs> And this also I did not love in that there was sort of what came off to me as kind of like a date rape joke that this guy like bought her a drink and then brought her up to his room and like she didn't doesn't quite know what happened. But she, and she ended up on his spaceship or something. Yes, which was made up to look like a room at the Holiday Inn in Paramus. Right. Yeah, that was, uh, well, you know, has been has been made the point any number of times. There's a lot of both movies and certainly lines of movies that while they might've been made 30 years ago, probably wouldn't go. Right. I don't know how many times it's been pointed out to me that no animal house is not another Ramis movie. I believe uh, not a movie that could be made today. Probably. Yeah. There are a number of consent related issues in that movie. Right. Right. We also meet Dana Barrett who inexplicably started dating Peter Vinkman at the end of the last film. Now she at some point, we'll get more details later. She at some point ended up with somebody else who she now seems to be divorced from and has an infant son who's named Oscar. And she also works at an art museum uh, doing uh, restoration work, which will say more about the, uh, the restoration work in a moment, but also what we uh, have the, we kind of, or what do we actually get first? I can't remember the order of things. Do we have the museum scene first or the baby scene first? I think we have the uh, baby scene first. Yeah, the baby scene first. Yeah. And it's some nondescript art museum, which really doesn't exist, I think. Yeah. And in fact, I think it's called the Manhattan Art Museum. Yeah. And I, I think I looked it up. It's actually the New York Customs House. I mean, the building is one of the big old federal buildings downtown. Yeah. But in any event, yes, it's a fake museum with fake paintings in it, like the Carpathian, I guess. So, anyway. Right. My vague impression was that they wanted to kind of imply that it was something like the Met, but couldn't even get permission to film in front of the Met. <laughs> it certainly has that look about, although it's much smaller than the Met, but um, yeah, that, that could be. We see her, right, that she is uh, coming up to her apartment. She's got groceries. She's got her kid in a intensely old-timey baby. Or, well, I don't know. You had a child in around 1989. Is that what baby carriages looked like in 1989? Because I thought it looked like it was from the 40s. Well, we actually, I think for you, we actually did use one for the from the 40s because we used it was used for me. But um, it's not 
what you buy today at Costco, that's for sure. So even in 1989, this would not have been a state-of-the-art baby carriage? I don't think so. Okay. And the not super state-of-the-art baby carriage uh, manage, uh, ends up kind of rolling away from her and rolling through traffic. And it's pretty obvious, especially given the context, that something is supernatural is going on in the way that the stroller is evading traffic in such a way that the baby is never in danger or, you know, or never actually is harmed, but is rolling away from her. So something clearly is going on. Yes. Uh, and she begins the process of contacting the Ghostbusters. She contacts Egon. She absolutely indicates that Venkman should not be involved. We'll see how that goes. We also get a sense of her work at the museum and meet our good friend Janos. And I, I do love in terms of the, uh, you know, the his one good moment is I do like the other person that he comes up to and he just says, everything you're doing is bad. I want you to know this. <laughs> right. That's um, not, well, I guess it's, uh, although I thought, uh, I thought that might more have been to sort of say that to somebody else because, uh, you know, he's talking up Dana most of the time because he her so yeah yeah everything she does is great yes which he tells her after touching her hair uh just like pro tip for everybody do not do not touch a person's hair without their permission just do not do not do that do not do that creepy yes Yes, and he asks her out to brunch, and she says no. It is implied that she has said no many times, and that he is not getting the hint, and that she is only being polite because he is her boss. There are so many issues here. One needs to get HR involved in this even before he becomes possessed by a late medieval, early modern dictator. Well, right. Although, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know what the situation, you, you would think, I think there have been enough things about museums have their own issues with this. They're horrible, yeah. wonderful places in that regard. I mean, leaving right. the art looting um, right. as well, but, uh, you know, they, they, they've had their issues, certainly. Right. He, he's not great. And he also is, again, really not getting the hint in that as she's leaving, he goes, I think that she likes me. And it's like, oh, sir, sir, no. No, 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 no. Dana has her lunch appointment, which seems to involve her going home, having somebody else feed her child, and then having the Ghostbusters now at this point come in to measure the child. So, and examine him generally. So unsurprisingly, Egon told Ray, which was fine, which she gave permission for, and Ray in five seconds, as soon as Peter showed up and asked one question, Peter pulled on his ears, and so Ray gave everything away and said that they were helping Dana with something. Uh, arguably, he tortured him. So, arguably, yes. It, it just doesn't look much like torture when he's just sort of holding his ear in a. Well, ears are very tender. It's um, yeah. I'm sure it was very painful, but yes, Ray gave it up pretty quickly. And Ray, in general, tends to not be the character portrayed as having the greatest strength of will. No. Overall, so. Which comes up later in the movie as well. Yes. They examine Oscar, including some really scientific baby measuring, where they're able to apparently come up with an average length based on, like, holding a tape measure or sort of near him while he's sitting. 
Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> like, like some of the legal issues we'll talk about, I'm not sure the uh, baby, the pediatric uh, evaluation is uh, quite as uh, realistic as, you know, it uh, probably should be, or, well, if it was going to be realistic, it wouldn't look exactly like that. But again, it's a movie. So they examined the baby, they examined the home. We also got some good insight into Egon Spangler's youth in that he's informed that his parents didn't believe in toys. Uh, <laughs> and we also then asked at some point, did you even have a slinky? And he responds, we had part of a slinky, but I straightened it. Right. Now that, <laughs> that's consistent with uh, uh, Egon's character, I think. So. Uh-huh. Yeah. Meanwhile, at the museum, uh, so we have this painting that we, uh, we have seen already, the painting of Vigo the Carpathian. And Vigo the Carpathian certainly uh, suddenly starts becoming very chatty and introduces himself that he is I, Vigo, the scourge of Carpathia, the sorrow of Moldavia. And he starts commanding Janos. Uh, you know, he talks about this nice mountain of skulls, about his, you know, throne of blood that he's going to have and announces that now is the season of evil, which is, I guess, somewhat worse than the winter of our discontent. Right. But uh, yes, he's, uh, he has been introduced as our evil force for the, for the movie. Yes. This is what makes this movie a candidate for this podcast is the presence of our good friend, Vigo the Carpathian. Right. That'll, that'll teach them. By doing this, they've subjected themselves to being picked apart on your podcast. So Yes. You, you should have known in this movie that you made two years after I was born. Uh, so Janos is the one who, as he's working on this painting, uh, he's the one that Vigo starts chatting with. I have to note, in terms of talking about how Janos is already a super creepy, unpleasant guy, he seems essentially kind of on board with all of this, with the possible exception of being slightly hesitant about the bring me a child so I may live again part, but like only a little hesitant. Before at that point, Vigo does officially, you know, bewitch him. He, you know, has this like red thing, that red light that goes into his eyes. But Yadr seems kind of pure for it even before that. Well, maybe he's already seeing the possibilities of using this as a way to get Dana, which. Uh... Right. So, you know, we, we have a guy who's like very quick to be on board with being in alliance with an evil painting who, as I said, I'm not even sure 100% Vigo would have had to be with him. I think he was basically pretty much there. Um, it. Nah, he was susceptible to being bewitched. Let's yeah. Yeah. That is what is going to be, of course, our main challenge. The Ghostbusters are now continuing their investigation. And so they decide that what they should do is that they've, they went over to the part of the intersection where Oscar Stroller had stopped and they got a very high whatever it is rating. I did not write down any of those terms, which I assume are all completely fake and invented. They start digging into the street, uh, obviously without any permit or permission, wearing some kind of like miscellaneous looking semi-official seeming gear. Uh, so they start their excavation process. They are stopped by a cop who says, what are you doing? <laughs> who sent you to do this? Which, you know, I don't love cops, but that's fair. Right. <laughs> of why you are digging this hole. And is it First Avenue? 
Uh, yes, since that yeah. comes up later. Yes. Yeah. They managed to get him to temporarily, at least, drop it by basically just kind of sounding sort of like put upon workmen and continue their investigation. Ray goes down into the hole and sees the River of Slime, a fun river of pink slime, which will become, of course, our other, uh, the other fun uh, element that we will have. He gets a sample, but then as he is brought up, he kicks a pipe and this pipe brings about a citywide blackout. Right. This then does not go great. Yeah, this is where everything starts going downhill. Of course, there is a river of slime running under Manhattan, so it's going to go downhill at some point, but... Right. Right. But, you know, so this is, of course, our point, right, where the Ghostbusters get into official trouble and are arrested and taken into court. Our judge, Judge Wexler, he is uh, not not on their side in particular. He basically begins by saying, I think that everything you do is utter bullshit and that you're a bunch of frauds preying on vulnerable people. So clearly we're not getting a particularly receptive judicial. And we sort of talked about this earlier. I mean, the the case actually seems to be tried by him. It doesn't even, I mean, it's a criminal case. They're potentially going to go to jail and it's not even a jury trial, which at least from my standpoint would be sort of unheard of in this situation. But again, this is, you, you, you only had so many people they wanted for this scene, I guess. And, uh, a judge and a couple lawyers and some defendants was all they decided they needed. So that's what they did. Right. And they've got a sort of miscellaneous audience. So, and, and would, and right. right, And I guess trials are supposed to most of the time be sort of public, right? Like people can come in and show up. Yeah. Public are all typically public unless some national security thing is going on or something. So it's all public and you know, it's the ghostbusters. So they're general, this could be fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I completely buy that. You know, if they can come, that there would be enough people who are like, yeah, that looks like an interesting way to spend an afternoon. Right. The trial is not going particularly well. This uh, in part might have to do with the fact that they uh, have hired uh, our friend from the first sh- from the first film, Louis Tully. So that's Rick Moranis' character as their lawyer. He when we first met him in that film, he really is primarily an accountant, or I guess, or I guess he does like a, ta- he does like tax law, right? Yeah, he's an accountant that does no. Well, no, he's an accountant. I think. Okay, he's just an accountant. I think so. Okay. Maybe he um, went to law school in the uh, in in this five year period in between. So. Well, and specifically, we do learn that whenever precisely he got it, he did, uh, he got his law degree at night school. So it was, you know, something clearly that he did on the side, though, you know, no shame to people who get a law degree at night school. Yeah. Um, but I do like his response. Is it Ray? I think he that says, well, that's hey, fine, Lewis. E- e- Egon, I think. Uh, oh, that's right. Or no, no, I'm not sure. But uh, well. And- that one of them responds, that's fine, Lewis. We got arrested at night. <laughs> right. Again, he's he's clearly not very good at this. My assumption would be that this is his first uh, actual trial as a lawyer. 
Uh, I, I think that's pretty much a given. Yes. No matter when he got his law degree, uh, I think we can assume he's probably never been in a courtroom before. So. Yes. Uh, but, you know, he'll have he'll take on all sorts of new exciting roles over the course of this movie. Uh, so this is one of them. He uh, His opening statement is basically, I don't blame them for causing all of this destruction because one time I turned into a dog and they helped me. Right. Which uh, was <laughs> sort of got... <laughs> set, it sets the stage for the whole trial. It, it's, But, you know, it, it was really a pretty easy case because what they're being tried with is largely violate, you know, the restraining order they're under to in terms of investigating ghosts and what have you. So, you know, it, it's really, when it comes down to it, pretty simple. They got to, I mean, that's why they're, the way they've got it set up is, you know, you, you weren't supposed to do this. You were caught carrying this ghost catching equipment, doing these things in this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in some ways you could see this could be a pretty short trial because Mm -hmm. really just about you're violating this order that you were previously under. And of course, once you violate a court order, you know, criminal uh, consequences might ensue. Right. So, With presumably, I would assume some sort of added damage charges given that they caused a citywide blackout by unsolicited digging a hole in the middle of First Avenue. I think there was some, if I remember right, some sort of, you know, destruction of property and that kind of thing. So, Right. I do. I will also note that at some point when asked why they were digging a hole in the middle of First Avenue, Venkman says there are already so many that we didn't think anybody would notice. Right. (laughs) Right. driven a car in New York that's um, that's uh, you that's pretty funny yeah yeah and he also really does I think that's a good like he gets a good response from the audience they're all like yeah that's a good point <laughs> the trial continues with its uh, trademark lack of success um, at some point uh, when uh, Venkman is on the stand uh, you know Lewis is kind of basically sort of trying to kind of repeat things and at some point he gets called out for leading the witness. I think the, the witness is really leading him. Right. But uh, he's right. I mean, uh, L- Lewis doesn't know what he's doing. So Vank no. trying to get him to ask him questions to say what, what he wants to say. And, you know, he just clearly leads to a bunch of leading questions by Lewis. And finally, I mean, nobody's taking this very seriously, but finally the, the prosecutor objects. And of course it's sustained and, <laughs> you know, but his reaction was, well, hey, what are you doing that for? We're both lawyers. <laughs> I assume that also it's not, uh, there's not a lot of lawyerly camaraderie between the uh, uh, prosecution and defense. Not, well, while there can be some lawyerly camaraderie, yes, uh, uh, that not, not to that level. <laughs> So, of course, the slime is, uh, you know, one of the exhibits on display, which will be relevant as, and the slime, as we've already, I think, gotten maybe some, I can't well imagine, maybe this is a kind of first indication, but the slime ha- uh, reacts to human emotions. And we get our first indication of that when the slime starts bubbling aggressively as Wexler delivers his verdict quite aggressively. 
So essentially this kind of diatribe against them, ending with saying that he would like to go back to a purer, sterner justice and have them burned at the stake, which he basically <laughs> screams. Oh, yes. Well, there, yeah, he's screaming and, you know, the, the, the slime is starting to change the, uh, I mean, it's getting windy and dark in the courtroom because the slime is having its effect. And yes, it's almost like he's, you know, sort of a judge at the Salem witch trials. At this right. Time. That's very much the vibe. And at that point, some ghosts burst on in. And these ghosts are uh, identified by Wexler as the Scolari brothers, who uh, he, some number of years ago, I don't think it's quite stated, tried them for murder and gave them the electric chair. And when was uh, capital punishment last legal in uh, the state of New York? I, I, can, I can answer that. Uh, it was, well, it was initially banned by the Supreme Court temporarily. Right. And- in 72. And then at some point that was lifted, but at some point the New York Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in New York, uh, they issued a case basically saying it's banned under the new mm-hmm. institution. So I think it, it's been banned in New York since sometime in the 2000s. But the last mm-hmm. time anybody got the chair uh, in New York was sometime in the early 60s. Okay. I mean, that was, I think, the last execution in New York. So the timing is a little off. I mean, a judge who's a judge in basically right before 1990. Right. uh, He would have had to sentence somebody in maybe about 1955 for it to work its way through and for them to actually have been executed, which, of course, they were. That's the point. So that would make him a really old judge who's been on the bench for a very long time. And, you know, he wasn't that old. Right. About 60. Most people become judges when they're in their twenties. So, you know, the timing is a little off, but um, you know, I just looked him up out of curiosity. He would have been 18 years old in 1955, the actual actor. So even if he's playing a bit older than his age. Right. So, but yeah, so we've, we've got ghosts. Uh, he, at this point appeals to the ghostbusters uh, and one of them responds, why don't you just, I think it's Egon. He says, why don't you just tell them you don't believe in ghosts? <laughs> right. No, that's, uh, <laughs> yep. Pretty, pretty easy uh, thing to, uh, they're, they're in the driver's seat at this point. Now that some ghosts have shown up. Yeah. So they now, they now have some pretty serious leverage and, uh, Wexler dismisses all charges and rescinds the restraining order. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and credit where credit is due, Lewis does step in and he at least knows what are the specific things that they need to make sure to ask for. Yep. He gets the judge to uh, uh, vacate the restraining order so that they're, you know, and dismissed all the charge, the other charges in this case against them. And, you know, so with that, they were able to go and uh, start catching the ghosts again. Right. So they they bust these ghosts, rescue our judge, and, you know, come out and announce that Ghostbusters are back in business. Yes. 
And we've got we've got a good getting we've got some getting the gang back together stuff. Uh, Janine is uh, is back as their as their secretary. Uh, love the new look haircut definitely works for her. Uh, it's 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 interesting. Yes, uh, she's got total total makeover at this point. Mm-hmm. It's great, great stylish late '80s quirky look. I'm here for it. You know, and we see them as I said back in business. They've got new commercials. They're getting there. They've got mugs. <laughs> There was always some merchandising involved even in the first one as well. So, uh... And also in their free time, they are, or at least Ray and Egon, are investigating the slime, which they, you know, end up at some point, uh, you know, revealing all of the details, which initially Vankman mercilessly mocks them for, uh, for their discoveries and experiences. Right. So what they've learned is that the slime reacts to emotions, or as Venkman calls it, mood slime. We see them yell at the slime, uh, which does seem to respond about equally to Ray's general taunts and Egon's very scientifically focused taunts. So it understands those well enough to realize that those are insults. Very, very intellectual slime. Yep. So we see it, you know, bubbling over, getting angry. We also learn that they are having other kinds of positive interactions with the slime, that they sing to it and say nurturing things to it. Bankman asks, you're not sleeping with it, are you, Ray? And Egon kind of has an expression. Right. So there, there is something even more uh, strange. Nurturing. Yeah, nurturing going on <laughs> They, as part of their demo, put some of the slime in a toaster, play some yeah. music, and the toaster dances. Yeah, now that's one of the good scenes of the thing. Yeah, play, play. Uh, I forget the name of the the, the artist and the music, but uh, sort of happy music, and uh, the the toaster just bounces up and down. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, so I don't know if this is actually the name of it, but it's the one that's like higher and higher. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very, very happy toaster. Uh, so yeah, so they are learning more about the slime. Venkman then goes to the museum to talk to Dana about what's going on and what they've learned. Uh, on his way in, he meets a fan, one of these security guards, who says that his show is one of his favorites uh, and that the other one was Bassmasters. Right. Uh, just sort of a little more re-emphasis that... Uh... The, the, the people that uh, Venkman is attracting are, well, I, I guess he's making fun of people that like fishing shows. But uh, yes, it's right. uh, uh, fishing shows and Venkman show was the favorite of this guy. So, uh, but anyway. They're certainly, you know, I guess presented as maybe not the, I don't know, I guess not like the most prestige television, typically. <laughs> right. <laughs> And he gets to see Vigo. We learned that they were preparing this portrait for what is called the new romantic exhibition. I will have comments on that terminology later. We learned that the subject is a powerful magician and a genius in many ways, according to Janosch's assessment and a lunatic and genocidal madman, 
in Dana's assessment. And she says that she hates this painting. It has been uncomfortable ever since it came up from storage. And I do love, and you know, we know that museums do this. I do love that this painting has implicitly just like maybe like been in storage in the fake Met for like, I don't know what, a hundred years, like. Right. Yeah. They've just brought it upstairs now. So, so I guess it's, it's on them that they've uh, gotten this uh, the monster. Yeah. Um, back up to sort of start working his his evil right should have left him in the basement venkman starts you know making fun of the portrait as is his style and says that you know he he thinks he just misses his kitten and then goes to paint a kitten in which janos is and you know fair really angry which is a reasonable reaction even without it being a painting that houses and you know evil 16th century sorcerer who has bewitched him. Right. As you're seeing him do that, and then when Venkman goes, sort of goes away from the painting and they look back, then uh, Janos is talking to the picture at that point. So I think yes. both of them have to realize there's something weird going on here. So Yes. We also do get the not great line from Bankman that you're not going to get a green card with that attitude, pal. Right. So. And actually, you know, I will say, I think actually a good way to get a green card is probably by preventing a man from adding a kitten to a 16th century painting. Um, yeah. I think you're less likely to get your a work-sponsored green card if you allow that as, during your job as the like head of restorations. Of course, if you allow <laughs> homicidal lunatic from the 16th century into uh, terrorize New York City, that that might also uh, reflect right. unfavorably on your chances. Right, but you know, but the other thing is also, of course, it is a problematic line in terms of it really is sort of, you know, mocking him essentially for being an immigrant, which is not great. Right. And we actually know very little about him other than the fact that he's, you know, has an accent, basically. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think it's, I mean, I, I sort of always assumed for whatever reason they thought, I mean, maybe sort of connection with the painting they wanted to make him somebody that, you know, is from Eastern Europe. So they give him a, of course, overblown, comical Eastern European right. to do that. And leaving aside again, do we still do that today? Eh, not so much, but. Uh, right. You know. Right. And, you know, very, very broadly Eastern European accent. I very much doubt this is connected to any particular location. Right. Um, and of course, you know, we, we don't know anything about him. Probably know he's a citizen. Plenty of people who have accents are citizens. Right. Is, so. Right. So the slime, obviously the slime and Vigo are in cahoots in, in some way. The slime uh, invades Dana's bathtub. She's about to give Oscar a bath and the and all of a sudden the water stops and instead the pink slime comes out of the uh, comes out of the bathtub, which seems like a, you know, really one of those moments where you'd kind of be like, wow, I guess there is something to be said for renting instead of owning. <laughs> right. You you never have to deal with the pink slime problem if you're a uh... Uh, at the end of the day, if you're a renter, so <laughs> exactly, I I would love to not have to pay for whatever that did to the plumbing. Right. 
or <laughs> rid of it. Yes. Right. They run away from the mouth of pink slime that is about to eat her child. And she runs over to Venkman's. This is a obviously in context sensible choice in that I guess how many other places is she going to go in this particular situation? I will say that especially the more we actually hear, there is kind of a like, why do you think it's a good idea to get back together with this dude? Right. (laughs) There probably isn't, but again, you know, it's a movie. It's probably not a good place, particularly after we hear a little more on how things went, you know, during the first time around. But, uh, you know, part of it is, uh, you know, just like in the first Ghostbusters, it was saving the damsel in distress. We're going to retread that one and save the damsel. Right. Yeah. Speaking of evil uh, themes. So. Right. Right. (laughs) So, uh, yeah. She is, so, you know, she's over, you know, so she goes over there. Uh, we we hear, by the way, that one of the things that, you know, uh, led to her leaving was him referring to her as the old ball and chain, while also, you know, definitely refusing to actually commit to anything. Great guy. Definitely, definitely romantic material and somebody you want to uh, rekindle your relationship with while you also have a child. Right. But yes, I will say, surprisingly, not bad with the kid. Yes, they actually go out of their way the whole time to make him uh, and, you know, just be engaging with the kid. Yeah. Times. Um, yeah. I mean, one of his, one of the more endearing things of Bill Murray in this movie, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Uh, yeah. Does a great job interacting with the kid. Yeah, you know, long term, I have my doubts about him doing like an equal share of the parenting. But when he's with the kid, he, you know, does a very nice job of paying attention to the kid and keeping the kid entertained. So credit where credit's due. I occasionally give men credit for things. Occasionally, yes. (laughs) The Ghostbusters are learning more about their slime. They uh, get a hit on Vigo in the Occult Reference Network and identify him more fully as Vigo the Carpathian, dates 1505 to 1610, so falling in nicely into the early modern period in an era which is fair game for this podcast. (laughs) And he is mentioned in Leon Zundiger's uh, Magicians, Martyrs, and Mad Men. Nice nice alliteration on that one. And... uh, the uh, kind of beginning of the entry that we get on the screen is it says that 16th century Carpathia was in a constant state of spiritual turmoil due principally to the despotic rule of Prince Vigo von Deutschendorf, tyrant, sorcerer, and psychotic autocrat. And yeah, so that's interesting that he actually right. is given the name of the twins who the played twins. The, the Oscar. Yep, I didn't, well, I, I hadn't realized the that was what the it said in that book, uh, yeah, that, that's interesting. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, an Easter egg, I guess. Because it's actually, I paused to write down what was on the screen. I don't oh, think yeah. they ever actually say it. So it really oh, yeah. is like a pretty, a pretty hidden Easter egg. You actually have to really be kind of paying attention. And I really, I never noticed it before. I just paused because I wanted to, of course, do my due diligence for this podcast and getting all of the information provided on Vigo. Right. Uh, Which is not extensive. So uh, no. 
but uh, no, well, uh, kudos to you for, for getting that. So, yeah. So yeah, cool little Easter egg. We also, as uh, they, you know, continue to discuss this later, we learned that he, not only did he live to 105, he did not die of old age. He had to be poisoned, stabbed, shot, hung, stretched, disemboweled, drawn, and quartered. So a wide array of things uh, also has indicated that he was not a man of the people, also referred to as Vigo the Torturer, Vigo the Despised, and Vigo the Unholy. And that relevant, of course, to the context of this film was said to have uh, announced at his the moment of his death, death is but a door, time is but a window, I'll be back. And yes, he will. So Indeed. So they go to the museum to uh, get more info on this painting. Uh, this brings them once again into contact and conflict with Janos. We then get our next like nasty immigration comment where uh, Venkman needs to ask him, where the hell are you from anyway? To which, you know, props to Janos, she responds, the Upper West Side. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, no, he probably isn't or whatever. I mean, yes, it, it sort of sounds like the, it, it's all... What's the word I'm looking for? Racist. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I guess uh, more know-nothing anti-immigrant than racist, but same thing, I guess. So, any of that? Yeah. yeah. There's no not gross way to ask somebody who, like, you think lo- looks or sounds not fully, quote, American. There's no non-gross way to ask them, like, where are you really from? Right. As I experienced constantly being asked that question in Indiana, where they didn't understand the concept of like non-Anglo-Germanic white people. Uh, fair enough. <laughs> so I got a lot of, so where are you from? And I'd say DC and they'd be like, but where are you originally from? It's real fun. <laughs> Love Indiana. Yeah. <laughs> They start to take photos, despite that not, in fact, being authorized. We are told that slides are available in the gift shop, which is a a real uh, last year from the past. I was going to say slides haven't been available in the gift shop. They they probably weren't available. I don't know. Maybe were they still available in the gift shops in 1990? Maybe they were. Not not anymore. It's hard to even find a postcard anymore these days. Now that everybody's got can take automatic pictures themselves with uh, with their own phones. But uh, yeah. I that. did in, co- in the beginning of college, I did still have a couple of professors who were using slides in the early 2000s, but that there was an active process at that point of discouraging them from using mm-hmm. slides. And like, like there were people like people who like on behalf of the department were digitizing their slides. So they'd stop using slides. <laughs> bringing, bringing them into the 21st century, whether they wanted to or not. Kicking and screaming. <laughs> so it, I sound that it certainly makes sense that you at least could get slides in 1989. Right. And there, there certainly have always been places that, I mean, even today, you know, there's places that allegedly, Although they, because phones are so ubiquitous now, there, there was certainly a time when there's a lot of places that have said no photos to basically keep, try to keep, keep control of the images that they, you know, arguably have some copyright in or what have you. But uh, 
most places have done away with that at this point. I, I mean, I can remember going to see the the Last Supper in Milan. There was a time where very strict rules about taking pictures and, you know, they literally would confiscate phones if they caught you doing it. Uh, the last time we went, everything, mm. you could do whatever you wanted. So yeah, I, they just don't care anymore. I think that ship has sailed. So yeah, yeah. Which, you know, maybe I know there's honestly probably too much of it for any for them to actually keep all of it from happening. So right. Uh, Venkman starts taking photos of Vigo and of course uh, taunts him as doing so. Uh, another joke that is not aged great is him asking uh, first, I bet the girls like you. And then how about the guys and how about the animals? Yeah, that's uh, right. So yeah, the, yeah, first we get the, uh, you know, homo, you know, being gay is an insult and then we get the, and that's basically the same as bestiality. So yeah, that's a whole, that's a whole array of choices. Yep. You know, yep. very late eighties. Very late. So, you know, they, they do their investigation. He goes home, uh, is horrified to see that she has cleaned. Uh, thank God she cleaned because that place was not livable for a child. No, it was- pretty bad i don't think that's livable for any adult human in fact but you know i given the things that i have seen about like men living alone i suppose it's not shocking from his perspective but it's a thing apparently apparently there are allegedly adult men who don't have a bed frame they sleep on a mattress on the floor um i was unaware of that so yeah yeah this is my generation but this apartment shows that uh even in that generation uh adult men living alone did not necessarily keep house in a slightly reasonable way some some do better than others that's certainly and we can we can assume that uh bill murray peter venkman is way on the low end on the low end yes he also suggests that he and dana go out on a date that evening and she ends up agreeing, but says, uh, don't put any of those old cheap moves on me, to which she responds, no, no, I have all new cheap moves. Uh, that, that was actually one of my favorite uh, lines. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh... it's, it is pretty charming, despite the fact that, like, watching this, you're very aware of the fact that, like, again, you you should not date this person. Right. Yes. But, you know, uh, it's... It... It's not like it's all not out there, you know. She's if she's making she's the- aware. She's aware. He's not hiding it, you know. You know, I guess that I mean, especially given that this poor woman does seem to have the absolute worst luck. I suppose I can kind of see it ultimately feeling like it was like a worthwhile trade-off that he is in general in many ways a truly terrible partner, but is there in a pinch in a supernatural episode. You know, if you're going to keep getting uh, subjected to supernatural episodes, and now this is her second one in five years, probably, probably that your significant other has some expertise in that area. Useful. Useful. They've asked Janine to babysit. Uh, We never quite get an answer on whether Janine has experience babysitting, but, you know, uh, (laughs) she's agreed. She's agreed. (laughs) 
And uh, Lewis, uh, meanwhile, has worked up the nerve to ask her out for something to eat. Uh, and she says she would like to, but has to babysit and then said, you know, but you can come babysit with me. Uh, and in a another stunning display of professional ethics, Lewis says, I guess I'll get his address from his W-2. Right. Which uh, <laughs> I hear you, but, you know, in all the things that happen here, the fact that he looks on uh, his W-2 to get his address is uh, the, the least of some of the things happening. Uh, but uh, you're, you're absolutely right. You should not uh, uh, you should not be looking at personal identifiable information or PII, as we call it in the government, for non-governmental reasons or non, non-business reasons in this particular case. But, but I don't know. Since his employer did, well, I know Janine wanted him to go over to, I guess it wasn't Venkman asking him to go to right. see her. So, yeah. Okay. Kind of question. I, I think they maybe if they're doing a third hire, they need to hire an HR person. Probably. <laughs> I think that's maybe the next step there at that uh, place of business. Meanwhile, who is it? Is it Ray and Ray and Egon are doing some additional research onto the images of Vigo, which are clearly very suspicious. They see that one of them, when they run it through something, reveals a kind of sub-image of the river of slime. So a lot going on. And then while they're chatting about their plans for dinner, which inexplicably involves that they decide ultimately on getting a Chicago-style pizza in New York. Right. I didn't even could do that, but... um... Oh, they they do. They they seize upon that as the that's the way to go, which uh you know, I mean for there. Sure you all, can. Wonder if that's all part of the I mean, all these guys, at least uh Aykroyd and I think Harold Ramis were all out of the second city. Uh, oh Chicago. So I wonder if that's where that's coming from. But you're absolutely right. Getting a deep dish pizza in New York is like, really? <laughs> Yeah, uh, which, you know, kind of means that they deserve what they get, which is that uh, Vigo tries to kill them. They are they get locked in and a fire starts and Winston has to break down the door to get them out and save their lives. Which he does. Yes. And one of the, you know, I assume it's because he's not one of the like main people on the movie. But there is, of course, I will note in both the first one and in this one, a weird dynamic in that there's like exactly one black character who is like never exactly an equal member of the Ghostbusters. Uh, he's, yeah. I mean, he's he's always there, but he's well, he, yeah. he's not a founding member, which no. point they point out in the first one. I mean, it's the three of them and then they bring him on because of all the all the work they have so right but yeah so and then it's like he he doesn't have a ton to do in this movie like he's not part of like the first excavation so you know it is i would say a kind of somewhat problematic dynamic in these films that again i would hope at least in theory somebody would have thought through a bit more if they were making a version of this now yeah they although remember they had him in it from the very beginning with the yeah Ray and him and Ray having to do the yeah I don't know why he wasn't in the uh the excavation uh the first first avenue uh excavation scene right I don't know why that wouldn't have been the case unless well yeah didn't want to get him into trouble 
Right. So, you know, he kind of shows up at the trial, but is not in fact under arrest. So, which, you know, good since he wasn't involved. Yeah. So uh, he saves their lives and they then run over to Bankman's to uh, invite him to their fun party of uh, uh, going back down and to look at the river of slime. Shockingly, he would in fact rather go on a date I will say I'm kind of surprised that Dana is not more invested in them looking into the river of slime. Right. You would have thought if that's what they needed to do to protect her from, uh, you know, uh, something that's obviously been uh, attacking her and her child that she would have said, oh, yeah, maybe we should all do this. But instead, she hails the taxi so they can go to dinner. But I guess they have not, they have not given her quite the full story. And I can see how it would not necessarily immediately be apparent how pressing this particular issue is. And as a single mom, she probably doesn't get out much. Right. So I, it's a little odd, but I sort of get it. They go down to look into the river, the river of slime. They run into a ghost train. Right. Ghost train is cool. And they, you know, end up ultimately being pulled into the river of slime, emerge directly in front of the museum, tellingly enough, and start fighting each other. And like, you know, Ray and Winston say, like, we nearly killed each other. Right. And that's uh, the mean slime. Realizing what the slime can do. Yeah. Meanwhile, of course, Dana and Venkman are supposed to be having a nice dinner. Very much overtones of, wow, it is not your job to fix this man. Because uh, I think, you know, she says one nice thing and he's like, see, like 24-7 support like that. And I could be like a decent person, a vaguely decent person in the next 50 years. It's like, no, no, right. you're a very talented professional. You can do better. Right. But, eh, you know, she won't. So, Yeah. She's so scared. Like, she's a professional cellist who was in, like, the New York City Orchestra and apparently has, like, significant art restoration skills. She is, um, he is certainly punching above his weight with her. Yes, that's, yeah. for, that's for sure. Yeah. In addition to, like, you know, no offense to Bill Murray, but, like, Sigourney Weaver is, like, one of the most stunning people yeah. ever. And Bill Murray is very funny. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not awful looking or anything, but, like... Right. You yeah. know, he's a leading man in comedies. As I said, he's punching above his weight. Right. We also, the other thing that uh, ha- is happening in the meantime is that uh, we see uh, the continuation of Lewis and Janine's adventures in babysitting. I love Lewis's uh, finance-heavy retelling of Snow White. What you would expect from Lewis, so... Yeah. <laughs> talks uh, about how they illegally are paying her under the table so they don't have to like deal with taxes. Right. Shouldn't do, uh, but you know, everybody does. So and he's but. like, it's a story, so I guess it's okay. Put the kid to bed and uh Janine and Lewis uh begin their relationship uh which she uh, initiates by saying i'd like a child myself would you and throwing her leg over him to which he responds tonight right and uh (laughs) they get they sort of get started so (laughs) the other ghostbusters show up at the restaurant uh, uh 
encrusted in slime still to inform Venkman and Dana of their discoveries. I believe actually this is when actually I think at this point Venkman actually does give Dana information that he has not given her entirely previously. I think this is actually the first time that he's like, oh yeah, the museum. No, you can never go back there. Really? Is that where that happens? Maybe it was there. I don't know. It's like relatively late. Hmm. Okay. So maybe that's it. Maybe she's like really had no idea what was going on with this river of slime earlier. Well, I know at some point, maybe it's a, he at some point tells her when they find, they found some slime in her bathtub when the bathtub tried to eat. Right. I don't know if that was. Yeah, she at least, she. I mean, well, she saw the slimes. That's true. She should at least know that there's something up with the slime. Right. I think it's just the museum connection is new. Yeah. So, no, she still should have been more concerned about the river of slime than she was. Unsurprisingly, they end up then getting arrested and are surprising. The most surprising thing is that the cops agree to take them to the mayor's office directly. Well, they're Ghostbusters. And, yeah. You know. They've, they've done this before, I suppose. Yeah, right. And they start to tell their info, their story to the mayor. Uh, and this also, I don't think we've mentioned that uh, our our asshole character, so basically the equivalent in this film of the EPA guy from the last film, right. is Jack Hardemeyer, who is the mayor's assistant, uh, who is prepping for the upcoming, I guess he's running for governor. Yep. So, you know, he's got, you know, his guy who is kind of making sure everything's running smoothly, politically speaking. So uh, he then, you know, looking out for the mayor's interests after they've kind of told their story and the mayor basically says, like, I really can't deal with this. He says, would you like to tell this to some of our people downtown? And takes them downtown to have them committed to a menstrual institution. Right. Yep which is so problematic for any number of reasons, but yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. A, like, I feel like it's actually, there are relatively few scenarios I thought in which you could actually be committed against your will. Well, there are, I mean, that's, it's, it's outrageous. And I, again, like, like some other things in this, this is not how it would likely happen in real life, but yeah, you know, no, the mayor, the mayor, his minions just don't get to put you in Bellevue because right. they're trying to shut you up. Right. Or well, the mayor's assistant. That's my hope. <laughs> it, it shouldn't be. Yeah. But yeah, so the mayor's yeah. assistant, we we do find later that the mayor does not, in fact, know about this. Right. So Dana goes home. Janine asks, where's Peter? To which she responds, well, he was arrested. And she replies, typical. Yeah. Really getting a sense of the fact that dating hasn't changed very much. Right. <laughs> oh, sure. I did. I did actually forget to note. I will have to add in because uh, I have notes in slightly different places that I did love the line that uh, they informed the mayor when they were talking to the mayor that almost 50% of you voted for us in the last election. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now he's. Uh... The mayor is a comic relief, as as usually mayors of New York are in most yeah. whenever they appear. Uh, they're sort of comic relief, if nothing else. So, but right. So, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> that certainly was not a great way to butter up the mayor. Janos, meanwhile, is uh, chatting with uh, Vigo. 
ask them to kind of get past the scourge part and the sorrow part into the next part of the plan. Uh, they officially agree that Oscar is going to be the specific child that he's kidnapping. And he uh, requests official permission that he now gets to like own Dana as part of this. So that's cool. Right. Yeah. And, uh, Vigo, of course, being Vigo says, absolutely. Yep. Is Great. It? Wife to you, mother to me. Mother, thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's pretty creepy. Dana is being kept up by this like continued date that is of Janine and Lewis that is happening in her apartment that they're like cuddling and watching a movie and she clearly desperately wants them to leave and they are not leaving. Right. Uh, then she, you know, I think she like feels a breeze. And so she goes back in to check on Oscar again. Turns out the window is open. The baby is on the window ledge. Is this her child's first step? Because we have not seen this kid walk before. Right. No, we haven't. We've just seen him in bassinets and uh, strollers and like on the floor and right. But you now he's he's walking around. Well, out on the ledge. What? Mm-hmm. He's up. So this woman has the worst luck. Yes, she does. Yano shows up or like ghost Yano shows up uh, inexplicably dressed like Mary Poppins with a baby carriage. Right. <laughs> I don't know what the point of that was other than, I don't know. He thought the baby would be better with him, with going with him if he was dressed up like a nanny. I don't know. I found it to be a bizarre choice. Right. It, it was. I was certainly wondering at least if it's like supposed to be like, in, like using alleged effeminacy as an insult. I don't think so. But I don't know. Especially because that's not something that really has come up with the character of Janos before, especially. So. Right. Yeah. No, it was very weird. But he takes the baby and runs off and she goes off to the museum. Meanwhile, the Ghostbusters are attempting to demonstrate their sanity to the local psychiatrist (laughs) and are not doing an excellent job. Yeah. I mean, I think this is sort of how happened last time too it's like you know until all hell starts breaking loose you know they're going to basically get treated like you would expect somebody to be treated that says ghost evil is going to take over the city and suck it into a big hole at this point and uh until that actually starts happening um you're not going to get a very good uh hearing yeah when it does start happening right or, uh, as as the show's by, uh, byline goes, who are you going to call? So, I do like the earnest question from the psychiatrist about if there are any other living paintings in the museum. <laughs> right. Dana appears at the museum, uh, and I appreciate the realism that she is not at her most stylish in the outfit that she threw together to rescue her baby from an evil painting. Yeah. You know, not 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 our best moment when we have to run out last minute like that. And she is, you know, and she kind of shows up and uh, Janos is there with her baby who is being like prepped to be possessed by Vigo. Very sort of occultish. Uh, what? There's like a big sort of thing of candles around. Uh, There's a circle of candles. Circle There's like candles. some stone altar kind of thing. The baby's on that, and 
I guess there's going to be some transference once midnight hits or something. Right. And uh, we do also get the comment that, uh, take a look, that's not Gainsborough's blue boy there. <laughs> In terms of, you know, this is a sinister painting. Meanwhile, things are in fact going to hell in New York that as it approaches midnight and Vigo is going to eat this child or whatever, right. um, that things are going poorly. I am 100%, you know, team slime on getting this woman's fur to eat her because like, fuck people who, you know, wear fur. Right. But, uh, but that's what the slime starts basically appearing. I mean, it's gotten so out of control that it's like oozing into all parts of Manhattan. And every time it hits something, just bad shit starts happening. <laughs> so, yes. Or, or in the case of the, the fur, uh, good stuff happening where the furs actually start attacking its, their own who's uh, wearing all these dead animals. So, right. You know, this like, you know, ultra, ultra rich lady, clearly. So, <laughs> Yeah, very. That one. That one's pretty satisfying. Uh, and the Titanic finally comes in. Titanic comes in. That's uh, that's impressive. So the mayor, meanwhile, is not pleased. He does not want to go down in history as the mayor who let New York get sucked into the tenth level of hell, and says, "All right, fine. Are you gonna call? Time for the Ghostbusters." Part of my response: They're not available. <laughs> Right. And eventually has to reveal that he had them legally committed. Yep. The mayor is not pleased, uh, fires him, and brings the Ghostbusters back. Right. So now the our heroes are 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 here to do what they're supposed to do. So oh, I guess the mayor also notes that uh when he's going through all this, he just spent most most of the last couple hours in his bedroom talking to Fiorella LaGuardia, who, of course, was mayor of New York back in the 40s and 50s and has been dead for, uh, you know, 50 years at this point. Right. Um, <laughs> he, he realizes something is very, very wrong. Right. <laughs> I guess, uh, is that who LaGuardia Airport is named after? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> perfectly, uh, perfectly fine airport. Perfect. Uh, much better now. I guess they just redid it. Yes. Yeah. No, now LaGuardia isn't gone. Yes, he's he's now he's not rolling in his grave anymore. So yeah, yeah, that's what he was talking to him about. He was like, "You really got to get some renovations happening on the on the airport name for me." Right. Well, he finally got it. They, of course, realize right that this is you know Vigo, uh, and I think the way they they express this is uh, that Vigo wants in on the twenty first century. Which I think if he'd seen the twenty first century, he might have changed his mind. Uh, that could be. <laughs> I don't want in on the twenty first century. Oh, that's not going so well so far. Yano shows, you know, excited, looking forward to it. Soon it will be midnight in the city, will be mine and Vigo's, well, mostly Vigo's. <laughs> and uh, tries to persuade Dana into, uh, you know, coming, quote, willingly, quote, and that the ability at this point for her to provide actual consent is essentially impossible since he's kidnapped her child and is having him be eaten by, his soul be eaten by, you know, 17th century dictator but i do love that his main uh, attempts to persuade her and the things that he really emphasizes as the perks of being the mother of the ruler of the world are a nice apartment a car and free parking 
Yeah, and in New York, those are some of the very critical things. Uh, I, I think I think really that's more of a statement of the ethos of New Yorkers than anything else. That that yeah. are the critical. If you've got a good place to live and a place to put your car, you are you are yeah. honestly really relatable. Yeah. <laughs> The Ghostbusters initially try to just blast the pink, uh, the pink slime. Meanwhile, after Dana went in, has covered up the museum. Uh, they try to just blast it, and that is not, in fact, successful. They have the idea that they need some kind of symbol that will, you know, rally the citizens, get everybody happy, recharge the slime from negative to positive. And seeing their license plate, they have the idea of the Statue of Liberty. Which, you know... Yep. Why not? <laughs> yep. So, uh, I mean, you know, this is our fun, large thing that happens uh, in in this film. And I think I did see in the credits that, uh, I mean, they do credit the National Park Service. I mean, I mm-hmm. they did. This was not, I mean, obviously they didn't rip up the Statue of Liberty and <laughs> do this, but they must have let them do a lot of filming, you know, in and around the statue to basically create the footage that would allow them in terms of the CGI type stuff they did to, 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 to make those scenes. So I think. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Like, and that made that they even probably like, right. Got the actual footage of them, like in the crown of the statue of Liberty. No, I think that that could be. Yeah. So they go to the statue of Liberty and spray it with a positively charged pink slime. And start playing some fun music. Actually, that when they the higher, higher and higher song, I think, as opposed to the the toaster scenes, isn't it? I think it might be both. Mm. I thought it was actually the same song because it was like the song that they knew worked. Um, okay. Well, in any event, they they play the they play the happy music, and uh, they actually have a uh, what a uh, sort of joystick set up. Uh, how this is really going to work in practice. A joint right. sort of like have the Statue of Liberty uh, control it to have it walk down through the harbor into Manhattan so they can uh, uh, save the city. The poor harbor guys who already have seen the Titanic. And so, you know, it's been like a wild evening. Now we're like uh, uh, quite surprised to see the Statue right. of Liberty walking towards them. Yep. I will also note that the Statue of Liberty plan does suggest that they uh, have not learned their lesson about, like, legal issues potentially arising from the first film. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Since if there's any damage, this absolutely seems like a uh, legal disaster waiting to happen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, you're taking a major American monument and sort of, like, leaving it, uh, uprooting it from its base and leaving it sort of lying around yeah right and i also comment that they uh they should have padded her feet which uh there's you know the i think egon says i don't think they make nikes in her size she walks on over the citizens are all cheering so we've got continued happy energy for the slime and uh, the slime barrier uh is also and then the indian uh and then there's also like a little uh, skylight and the statue of they're able to use the statue of liberty to kind of hammer through the skylight with her torch and they rappel down yep 
at this point, uh, so, and also, by the way, I will note that uh, Janos had her, had him and Dana wear party hats, like New Year's party hats, which was just the height of grotesquery. Uh, well, you know, he's, he's looking forward to his, his status in the city is about to go way up. So he's, he's ready for a party. Stoked for that apartment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But they neutralize him with the positive life, spraying him with a bunch of positively charged slime. So now at this point, all they have to deal with is Vigo. But that's still a decent amount to deal with. He has, I guess, gained enough strength that he is able to take on physical form. He comes out, he basically keeps all of them from moving, like he gets Dana wrapped up in some pipe thing. What is that thing? Some sort of just uh, uh, some sort of conduit pipe that yeah looks like part of like the ventilation system that basically uses it to tie her up. So yeah, Uh, and then you know magically immobilizes the Ghostbusters. Venkman once again decides to try and see if he can you know work on this by uh, taunting Vigo and says (laughs) that only a Carpathian would come back to life now and choose New York. Right. So. You should, like, go on a fun island somewhere. <laughs> the, uh, however, he really, what actually manages to uh, get them to get the upper hand is that the uh, crowds outside, outside all start singing. They're singing Auld Lang Syne and all of that positive energy and emotion, which allegedly happens in New York on New Year's Eve. Uh, you know, I mean, Times Square can be a pretty, you know... Yeah energetic happening place so I, I wouldn't necessarily rule it out of the question particularly it's energetic all this uh stuff going on like people mm-hmm. um, uh, encouraged to do that so mm-hmm. so with this the all of this positivity manages to weaken vigo enough that he gets back in the painting he temporarily then possesses Ray. So uh, Ray, who, you know, Ray, uh, again, does not have the uh, strongest will of the Ghostbusters. Right. He, he sort of turns around and sort of starts acting like Vigo, which, of course, just leads them to spray him uh, with the positive charge slime like they sprayed uh, uh, Janosch. Right. And then they use their proton packs on the painting Manage to ultimately use that to defeat and to get rid of Vigo. And the painting now changes such that it is now uh, replaced by a painting of uh, the four Ghostbusters surrounding the infant Oscar, which I'll talk more about the visual choices. But uh, I believe Egon suggests it looks like Raphael or Piero de Piero della Francesca. And Venkman says, I believe it's one of the Fettuccinis. I, I'm I'm more with the fettuccines actually. So uh, you know that's a, that's a kind of would be my argument as well. It's clearly not a top right. tier artist. I also would be really concerned about the long term effects on this child of him having nearly been possessed by an evil 16th century sorcerer and dictator. But I guess we're supposed to assume that he is back to normal and will I, grow up and be a normal non evil child. Yes, I think that's the assumption and. Well, I suppose we're supposed to assume that uh, Venkman and Dana are going to get together yet again. And yep. Go. yep. And uh, that everything is all 
great for everybody. The Ghostbusters are being celebrated. In theory, I guess we assume, since there wasn't a direct really sequel, I guess we assume they did not get sued. Park Service will manage to fix the Statue of Liberty. And, oh, I, we know they do. That's actually yeah. the theme. So they don't show that. Maybe they spray it with more slime and walk it back to Liberty. Yeah, they do say they're going to bring her back. Yeah, so yeah. that's good. Okay. Right. And they seem to be continuing their booming business. Yay. Yay. So... So that is the plot of Ghostbusters 2. So with that, we can get into the Vera et Falso, where we talk about what they got right and what they got wrong in this very, you know, historical film related to the Middle Ages. So first I have some comments about portraiture. First of all, they say that Vigo's portrait is there for a romantic exhibition. It is presented as, this portrait, I feel like it's presented as being something that was painted from life of Vigo. Romanticism is an artistic movement that began in the late 18th century and it has its height in the 19th century. So this portrait clearly does not belong in a romantic exhibition. Right. Unless, yeah, there's nothing about the portrait. I mean, yeah, not that we actually, that's a, strange it's almost like they're just sort of throwing out terms just for the sake of right terms and not even really thinking about them which is okay but if you like any sort of realism in your movies of course this is a movie called the ghostbusters maybe that's not as uh, uh, it's probably not the highest uh, of their list of uh, tasks but in any event yeah it doesn't it doesn't scream out uh, a romantic painting And since they, again, I feel like it is also implied that this is something that was painted from life because it is supposed, given that like it has his soul in it essentially. And also that you kind of got the impression that nobody was so fond of him that they were like painting a bunch of pictures of him a hundred years after he died, which was in 1610. So, you know, a hundred to 150, 200 years after he died. It makes sense to me that this must have been a painting that was done during his lifetime, which ended in 1610. So I I don't understand why they somebody couldn't have taken the two seconds to look up and call it like Renaissance or Baroque painting, a, a Renaissance or Baroque exhibit. Right. I do think it was a good choice in terms of the portraiture style to have a full length portrait. And that while this is not the most common style of Renaissance and Baroque portraiture, it was often used to identify the power and authority of the figure, according to uh, the, the, the real Metz discussion of uh, Renaissance and Baroque portraiture, said that that was the goal often of doing a full-length portrait and also it kind of displays wealth because it would have been more expensive for obvious reasons than a, you know, shorter portrait so, you know, I buy that as something that Vigo would have found appealing when getting his portrait commissioned. Sure. It has a landscape background, which is not the most common stylistic choice, uh, but is not unheard of. The Mona Lisa has a landscape background. It also, I would say, is it's sort of monochrome and coloration, which is also, I would say, not standard, but not unheard of. Right. It's a very strange, I mean, it's hard to even sort of explain it. It doesn't. It's very yellow. It's very yellow, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, it has a sort of weird. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it has a very sort of weird tinge. I mean, it kind of looks like maybe it need, it either needs some restoration or underwent a not very good restoration. Right, it ne- needs a good cleaning, perhaps. But uh... yeah, but I will add that uh, one common element of portraiture in this era was including objects that represented something about the interests of the subject or had some kind of symbolism. And so, given that, I think the pile of skulls does a good job of demonstrating Vigo's interests. Yeah. So I will give the portrait that. It is then replaced with this painting that is supposed to be Renaissance-ish. In my view, it's a not good enough to be either Raphael or Piero della Francesca. Well, right. It's... Uh... <laughs> It, it, yeah, no, no one would mistake, uh, mistake it for <laughs> either one of those artists. So yeah, one of the, uh, one of the like, no, so I think the one of the Fettuccini's comment is a fairly reasonable one in that it looks like something that would have been created by like one of the many Italian Renaissance and Baroque artists whose names we don't really know. Yeah. Or, you know, are not know, you know, we might know them as art historians or something, but, you know, the general public is not aware of them particularly. I also will note that to me, at least, the style looks like it is later 16th century. So I see it as kind of not quite fitting in with uh, stylistically with either Raphael or Piero della Francesca. We have to be careful, though, if it's too late, don't we get outside of your period? And then we shouldn't even be talking about this, right? Vigo died in 1610. And so I'm, I'm count, I am saying like anything in that period is fair game. But in general, I've done, I've done through, I've done up to about 1700. I've counted as fair game. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I did three musketeer. I did both of the three musketeers adaptations. It's, it's certainly, it's certainly before that. Yeah. 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 So I would say like, I would see that as like late Renaissance Baroque stylistically, as opposed to really like the early, like late 15th, early 16th century. (laughs) Also is arguably somewhat blasphemous in that it has a like somewhat Christ-like position, you know, infant Christ uh, position assigned to Oscar surrounded by the Ghostbusters in positions that normally be like saints or angels. Oh no, no, definitely. So, so got some good, some good casual blasphemy. Mm-hmm. Other thoughts on the maybe areas where people did not prioritize research and historical accuracy, or in this case, maybe just didn't really want to really make kind of direct connections with any reality, arguably, that I think maybe they kind of wanted to keep Vigo at a bit of a distance from anything particularly real. And that has to do with our references to Carpathia and Moldavia. So Moldavia is a region that at this time would have been under Ottoman control, meaning that uh, our good friend Vigo, had he been the ruler of it, might have had an imperial overlord, given that they relied on the supply of goods from this region. Uh, most notably, it was known for its agricultural production, and they expected to be able to get a grain and cattle out of Moldavia. I think they would have been concerned about Vigo and his pile of skulls, since uh, as as I comment on often, the more people you slaughter and the bigger your pile of skulls, the fewer people there are to carry out agricultural labor. To do any of the real work, yes. Um, Vigo ain't raising those cows. Right. So I think the Ottoman sultans might have been concerned. 
It is the case, however, that there were some violent internal conflicts in that region in the late 16th century, uh, in which the Ottoman sultans did, in fact, on occasion, intercede on one side or another. Carpathia, however, is not, in fact, something that actually refers to precisely a place. It is the reference to the, it obviously refers to the Carpathian Mountains, which border Moldavia. And uh, there's, of course, a, you know, an area around the Carpathian Mountains that includes a lot of different culturally and linguistically defined regions. But there was never actually a single political entity referred to as Carpathia. Ah, okay. Well, that... <laughs> And that makes it sort of sound like just a whole lot of movies that come up with a fake name country uh, for just just to have a name. And I think because of the Carpathian Mountains, when I was looking at things online, there actually seemed to be multiple movies that have a fictional country named Carpathia as just a we want to have something where the name is is signaling that it's located in Eastern Europe. And right. so it's referring to this real mountain range, but we don't actually want to refer to a real country. Hmm. Okay. Well, so, that, yeah, so there are multiple fictional you, you, like you kingdoms of Carpathia. Offend, you avoid offending people if you, uh, you know, have a name of a country. Although, you know, what Carpathia, it's sort of where the mountains are based in what's Romania now, isn't it? I think Romania, I think there are some other places that they kind of border along. I think it's actually a pretty decent sized mountain range. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so, you know, we're clearly kind of making connections to that region of the world, which, uh, you know, feeds into the fact that another real life inspiration for Vigo is probably Vlad III Dracul or Vlad the Impaler. <laughs> So I'm not going to get into too much detail on him since he is going to be featured in uh, an episode that, in fact, has not yet been recorded, but will very possibly end up for assorted reasons coming out before this. But I will note that he's also a figure famed for his brutality and unusual cruelty. I think they maybe decided that, you know, referring to Wallachia would be too on the nose, but that, you know, Moldavia and the Carpathian Mountains are certainly the right sort of area for him. So I think they're kind of making that connection. He does not seem to have had any may, any big reputation within his lifetime for a real connection with magic or the supernatural. So arguably, actually, his contemporary Matthias Corvinus, uh, who of the King of Hungary, would actually have had a better claim to be somebody who was like reputed to be a sorcerer, since he at least had a kind of big magical library. But Vlad the Impaler does, of course, provide loosely the inspiration for Bram Stoker's Dracula. Right. So I think that's basically where they are coming from in terms of uh, making him both this magician figure and of course, somebody who gets, you know, kind of resurrected essentially, right. Who will live again. Yeah. We've, as as you see, when we get to a later port, I I've uh, sort of thought of a way to redo this movie in a way to (laughs) go down that road a little further, but go on. Interesting. And the other parallel that I will note that I is not, this one is beyond my period, but I do think arguably another inspiration for Vigo is Rasputin. So this is, of course, getting into, again, way beyond my actual period, in fact, into, you know, the 20th century. But he was, uh, you know, a figure who had a reputation for sorcery and was legendarily difficult to kill. But he's also somebody that allegedly they tried a whole bunch of means of murdering him and were not successful. I'm not even sure it's legendary. I think it's pretty, I mean, they, he was, 
they tried to kill him and they had to do what poisoned him, shot him, stabbed him, only <laughs> throw him in a river, drown him, I think to, to get him. So, uh, in any event, yeah, I, I clearly that I think that's referring back to that, but you know, just because it's, they had to draw on. So, right. So, you know, clearly a, a grab bag of inspirations for Vigo, though, you know, Rasputin, of course, was not a sovereign ruler, unlike, unlike her good friend Vigo. Yep. So, I don't know. Did you have any other meaningful uh, historical parallel that you noticed? That's really all I had, except for uh, the thing I'm going to do for the Historia at Veritas. No, not, not really. I mean, I think the, no. I, I wouldn't. No. <laughs> and I, I think that's a function of the movie and how much they wanted to do than anything else. So. They, right. Yeah. It is admittedly uh, late on the history, but I am going to, in the Historia at Veritas, talk about how, although maybe the real Vigo's connection to the medieval past is tenuous, I'm going to argue that medieval and early modern people would have found the overall concept of this film, the idea that there is this painting that has a real living presence, would not have seemed that weird to them. So I'm going to talk about living paintings in medieval tradition. And these are mostly living paintings that are uh, sacred rather than aggressively profane, (laughs) however. Of course, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, the veneration of icons is a crucial part of tradition, uh, other than, of course, our periods of iconoclasm in the 8th and 9th century, where there was some, you know, vocal opposition to and, in fact, banning of the worship or veneration of icons. But if you, you know, go to any Eastern Orthodox church today, you will see that there are, of course, an immense amount of visual images representing Christ, the Virgin Mary, assorted saints, Uh, And that these are understood as having in them the real presence in some way of uh, that particular figure that you're supposed to be able to kind of access, kind of experience a relationship with Jesus or the Virgin Mary by uh, contemplating an icon. And in fact, that these are believed to have always existed and been a significant part of Christian tradition that uh, Orthodox theology holds that the very first icons of the Virgin Mary are painted by St. Luke himself from life. Right that like all of these other traditions of icons that they then are able to have this connection to her, in fact, because they're copies of these paintings made from life by St. Luke. We have that. And that, of course, is a very familiar context for for Vigo, who would be in in that part of the world, who would have grown up with a lot of icons. Western Catholicism has less of a coherent theology around images But medieval Western Christians also understood sacred images as having real power. And there are there as well a lot of stories of miracles linked with paintings or statues of Jesus and the Virgin Mary. So I'm going to bring in a few examples from what is more my part of the world research-wise. So uh, the the Kingdom of Castile and uh, specifically a text called the Cantigas de Santa Maria, composed in the 13th century. And so what this is, essentially, it is a, a group of uh, songs and, and that are telling stories about the miracles of the Virgin Mary, or alleged miracles of the Virgin Mary, accompanied usually as well with images illustrating these stories. And there are a dozen or so that actually involve miracles that specifically have to do with living images, 
And also, fun fact, uh, a lot of these living images seem to have been really into basically screwing over Jews and Muslims, who interestingly, you know, are both groups that don't particularly have traditions of sacred images. Uh, That this, you know, having an image of God would not be a thing that is cool for Jews or Muslims. So a couple of examples of uh, these stories that I wanted to share. First of all, a kind of more general one that we've uh, got this kind of example of an icon, which is uh, kind of located originally at this inn. And uh, there's a monk who shows up and uh, he ends up kind of picking and he ends up kind of taking this image, this icon of the Virgin Mary. And uh, because he's carrying this icon and this icon is so cool, there's a lion that doesn't attack him, that refuses to attack him. Uh, There are some thieves that try to kill him. And then a heavenly voice says, go away. And so he realizes all this is because of the the image. The image also like stops a storm. He is actually supposed to give the image back. So he'd, he'd gotten the image from somebody in this inn. He said that he was going to take the image on pilgrimage and then bring it back to them. He then tries to not give it back to them because it's been so useful to him. And then he is also mystically prevented from leaving because uh, the image is annoyed now that he has not kept his promise. And he finally has to give back and oil miraculously flows from it. Right. So. A very, a very active image that uh, brings about a lot of changes in the world. We also, as I said, have a lot of examples of images that are used in the context of anti-Jewish and anti-Muslim polemics. So there is one that talks about basically there's uh, this synagogue. The synagogue basically ends up being kind of bought by some Christians who end up deciding to turn it into a church. Um, The story is set in a kind of pre-Christian Roman empire where uh, they initially, you know, so the emperor is basically like, okay, you know, he weighs in, he says, all right, kind of hold off on, oh no, this is actually supposed to be the, this is actually supposed to be Julian the apostate. So the story is also kind of ultimately like even Julian the apostate kind of, you know, will will eventually recognize this power of this image of the Virgin, of this image, right, of the Virgin Mary. These Christians, right, so they have bought this, have bought this synagogue, they're going to turn it into a church, the Jews are annoyed. The emperor says, all right, just close it for a little while so we can figure out what's going on. At that point, a painted image of the Virgin just appears within the uh, former synagogue to the Jews who kind of show up to take a look at things, you know, just appeared. Uh, you know, if a person this happened at all, I wonder who snuck in in the middle of the night and painted this image of the Virgin Mary. Right. But according to the story, the Jews, of course, acknowledge that it is a divine, pro- that it is a divine image and say, sure, please take this building. And the emperor says, Oh, the emperor then actually kind of like looks at the image and is like, eh, I don't know. And the image looks at him very threateningly. So he doesn't like bother it anymore. <laughs> and then I'll also provide one example of a story surrounding anti-Muslim propaganda. So it begins with essentially a story about, uh, you know, in a context actually set within the Iberian Peninsula, where there are Muslims who capture a Christian city at which point they enter a church and start to destroy the altar and all of the images as the story goes. Saw this especially nice image, try to wreck it. The virgin, however, prevents them from actually destroying this image. 
And they are very, very worried and finally realizes, of course, God is punishing them for trying to desecrate the church and leave it be. So we have uh, a lot of these uh, very actively powerful images who not only contain the living presence of their subjects, but who intervene in the world in some very deliberate ways. Well, I mean, you know, when I, I, I was not aware of any of these, these medieval examples, I mean, I certainly knew about the icons and what they uh, represented. But when I was thinking about this, I, I merely thought of, you know, portrait of Dorian Gray. Mm. They have essentially a painting that acquires the soul of its um, mm -hmm. depicting uh, in this, to the extent that, you know, you destroy the painting, you destroy the actual individuals. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of that going on in this, obviously. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, I think it's probably fair to say Oscar Wilde was aware of this kind of a history with meanings yeah. and what have you. And not to mention that, but uh, in terms of the biggest thief of, of all time, in terms of uh, other things, uh, J.K. Rowling, mm -hmm. all the living paintings in um, in Hogwarts. Yeah. Of all those, you know, dead people who remain alive through these paintings mm -hmm. and, you know, to continue and, and to continue to have agency through them and yeah. in, in certain ways. So, yeah. And her, uh, her theology philosophy, uh, general explanation of the paintings is actually really messy because sometimes I feel like she wants to imply that they basically are the people. And then at least once she actually has, I think it's in the, the play that she actually has the painting of Dumbledore say like, I'm not really Dumbledore. I'm just a painting. <laughs> so I, she, she sort of tries to kind of both sides it in terms of the question of whether it really has the presence of the person or is just a kind of likeness that is copying that person in some way. And like co just copying their personality as well as their, you know, visual likeness. But yeah. But I mean, yeah. uh, but ultimately it goes, you know, I mean, I mean, this all goes back to the very beginning of, of painting, I think, I mm -hmm. mean, even back to the Greeks, uh, was it? A, yeah. Or whatever that they I mean, the whole point was, you know, once they saw people that could actually depict something uh, and, and to make it, at least in their view, so real, it's mm -hmm. have captured that image in a painting. And uh, so that's, you know. That that has been something ever since painting was developed. So, I mean, there's. I'm not sure. We're probably overanalyzing it from this <laughs> going on in the Ghostbusters, but you know what the role of painting is in 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 Western uh, society. I think uh, there there's a lot to be talked about there. Yeah, that there that I think it is. I think one of the things that is potentially compelling about this kind of storyline is the idea that, you know, we, we find the idea of like paintings being somehow alive, very compelling. And I feel like even it's like a thing in like horror movies now that right, it's like those like the painting and the eyes seem to be following you and that's supposed to yeah. be creepy. Yep. And I will say, although the medieval stories about uh, living paintings tend to kind of emphasize their sacrality, I will say that, you know, the experience of those living paintings in uh, these miracle stories for Jews and Muslims would have been, in fact, very sinister. Sure. 
So basically, Vigo is the Virgin Mary for non-Christians. Right. Please quote me on that. So at this point, we can get into the Fabula Nostra, where we talk about another film or piece of media inspired by this one. Uh, you already hinted at uh, an idea you have that might connect with something, uh, some other things that we've talked about. So do you want to go first? Uh, sure, I'll, I'll go first and sort of only vaguely thought out and was talking with your mother about it as well. It'd be the idea. I mean, you know, in some ways there's more of a of a, not own to steal your thunder for whenever you do Dracula, but there is sort of a Dracula thing going on here. What we were thinking is it might be better, a better, well, one, you don't want to remake Ghostbusters too. It really wasn't a great movie. You want to take the painting idea of the evil entity in it in New York, instead of having him sort of wait to get out of the painting and take over the world. Number one, he's, he's sort of really a vampire. He mm. goes, He's able to, before he gets out, he's able to sort of go from painting to painting in New York and create mm. other painting vampires. So, you know, he can go to the, mm. uh, uh, create uh, the Sainted Thomas More, uh, an evil person <laughs> of, of all time, make him into a painting vampire, you know, go to make all the paintings of people there into, into vampires. And then, you know, he, so he's created his vampire army. And then when you get to midnight, you know, New Year's Eve at midnight, that's the trigger that all of these vampires are then released into New York out of the paintings. And that's where all hell breaks loose and whatever. And, you know, you, you almost lose the city. And that's where the Ghostbusters come back in and not with positively charged slime, but they use garlic slime to defeat the <laughs> and uh, save the day. I'm not sure it would be a better movie. It probably wouldn't be a worse movie, though. So I think it sounds great. I really want to see the Picasso vampire. Yeah, we were talking about going into... Uh, <laughs> we have multiple mm. vampires with multiple heads here and there. So uh, anyway, yeah, mm. they, they would be... Uh, they could be some good ones there. Yeah. So I, I, by the way, am firmly team, uh, team leading Ghostbusters. I think, you know, I think the Ghostbusters 2016, I think is in fact a better movie than this one. Not as good probably as the original, but better than this one. And I would love for that to get a sequel and for that actually to be continued as a franchise. So while I don't want to copy this, I do think it could be interesting to see them come up against some sort of medieval early modern ghost figure. So as an alternative take, I think it would be fun for them to go up against a somewhat monstrous pre-modern woman ruler. So something like an Elizabeth Bathory type. Uh, she's the one who was famed for have, you know, murdered young women to bathe in their blood to keep herself young. <laughs> and, you know, maybe have to kind of grapple with, uh, you know, not that she's sympathetic, but in the same way that the that the 2016 Ghostbusters then kind of grappled with uh, this guy as being very much this kind of repu uh, representation of a very familiar form of toxic masculinity, the kind of main uh, their main villain of that film. I think it could be interesting to think about, you know, to have them actually then grapple with how maybe this figure, even if she's turned to evil, is responding to some really awful oh. pressures on women in her own context. So and that they have, you know, they still have to defeat her because, you know, she's murdering people and is this like horrible ghost trying to take over the city. But that, uh, you know, they have to kind of think about essentially like, eh, you kind of get it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, like that. I, I can see where that would have some some possibilities. So yeah. that is the version that I would like to see. That right. is very very loosely inspired by this. So at this point, I think we can get into our estimatio or rating where we rate the film on a scale from one to five based on whatever subjective criteria we see fit. Well, that's a hard one. Uh, I mean, I do. I'm probably only going to give it a three. I mean, from the standpoint of it really isn't a great movie. It's got some good lines. It has it, it moves. I mean, you know, it's entertaining to watch, but, you know, I mean, I, by comparison, you know, it's, it doesn't hold a candle to the first one. As you say, I agree. Even the, it's, it's not as good as the, uh, the remake, the, uh, the, 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 the feminine remake that they did. I mean, it sort of uh, languishes is probably the worst Ghostbusters movie out there. You know, I've said enough that maybe a three sounds, I mean, now that I'm saying it, it sounds a little sort of uh, stingy since I have watched it so many times that would at least suggest I should be giving it a better uh, rating than that. Because if if not, why why did I watch that movie so many times? Uh, trying to be fair, I, I'd say a three. I actually do, don't think this is the worst Ghostbusters movie because I actually do think this is better than Ghostbusters Afterlife, the uh, the newest one, which I think was not unenjoyable as a watch, but which really just, I feel like, overly relied on just nostalgia for most of its points. It's just like, essentially, it's just a movie that I don't think anyone would ever like if they didn't really like the original Ghostbusters. And it is in no way really funny. I have, I have not seen that one, so I... Yeah, no, it's, you know, uh, there, it has some of its moments if you really like the original Ghostbusters. I don't, I think this is, a, I think this is a better movie than that. And I am going to give it a 3.5, which is, I would say, in large part a nostalgia score in that I at least have fond memories of watching this. I still enjoyed the experience of watching it on the whole you know, compared to many things that I watch for this podcast, which I sort of groan at most of the time. Right. So I feel like I enjoy, it gets some I enjoyed points for that. Yeah I, yeah, I enjoyed watching it again. You know, it's definitely got some jokes which have not held up particularly well, like most things from the 80s. Yeah. And, you know, to add in my obnoxious historical comment, I do think that they could have done a better job of little things like, I don't understand why they couldn't have at least looked up the correct era to assign the portrait to. Right. right. That really, I feel like even, even before Google, I don't think could have taken more than seven minutes. You, you wouldn't think so. Right. To do that research. I think with all that, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to settle on a 3.5. So as I said, with it being relatively high for me, based on the fact that at least like, I enjoyed this more than many things I have watched for this podcast. Like I would watch this again. Most things that I've watched for this podcast, I will not watch again unless I am making my students watch it. (laughs) All right. Fair enough. So dad, thank you so much for coming on this podcast and talking about Ghostbusters 2 with me. You're very welcome. Are there places where the listeners could find you on the internet? I'm assuming the answer is not really. Not, well, 
you you can Google me. Uh, you'll you'll find some stuff. I'm not going to even comment beyond there. I, I don't have a. I I tend to keep a very low internet presence. So you're not encouraging anyone to find you on the internet. No, 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 no. You are, however, encouraged to find this podcast on the internet. Please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app. Please rate and review in Apple Podcasts, your podcatcher of choice. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join our Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah Itchdecker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd also love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So, Deb, thank you again. You're welcome. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye-bye. We're the best. We're the beautiful. We're the only. Ghostbusters. Yeah. We're back. Who you gonna call?